Good morning, everyone. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. I appreciate the opportunity to bring this morning's message. It's on the secret of contentment. I think a, a topic, a portion of scripture that is, cre- that is key to our, our walk. I think you would agree with me it's also an important message because we live in a society, a culture that is very discontented, that breeds discontentment. It's also a topic, an area of our Christian life that we have to battle every day, every hour, every minute. When you leave here, when you go home, we'd be content in the car you drive. When you get something to eat, will you be satisfied? The house you pull into. The family that you'll be with today, are you content? When you go to work tomorrow, will you be content? Will you be satisfied with the job that the Lord has provided? With the salary, with the vocation that you have chosen? Everything in our life we need to decide. It's always a binary choice. Contentment or discontentment? In fact, I heard someone say that life is lived out in one of two tents. And when I heard that, I got nervous because I don't like camping. But the point is, we live in either the tent of contentment or a tent of discontentment. How about you? How's your level of contentment, satisfaction in the Lord this morning. Perhaps you aren't sure. Let me turn it around and phrase it a little differently and ask, are there manifestations of discontentment in our life? Are we grumbling about our present situation? We really need to be careful with that because as I walk through this message, ultimately, Contentment is inextricably linked to our trust in God. And if we're grumbling about our present situation, what we're saying is somehow, God, in your sovereignty, you're getting this wrong in my situation. What about your past? Do you come in this morning harboring any bitterness? And I don't want to make light of a past situation, a past sin that has occurred in your life, but I can assure you that we cannot be content today in the present if we are nursing bitterness of the past. What about tomorrow? What about next week, next month? Pastor Curtis preached a message just a few weeks ago, Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, Be Anxious for Nothing. And in there, the Lord gives us illustrations, and ultimately, we don't know what the next minute holds, what next week, that he is sovereign, and we can't be anxious. We can't think that we control next week's outcome. Worrying about the future will rob you of your contentment today. I think it's an important message because, me included, we all battle discontentment to some degree. The question is, how can we be more content 
Fortunately, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer today in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 10. It's interesting because he says that he has learned, in fact, he's figured out the secret of contentment. It's interesting, if I was to ask the average person, I would say, let's create a caricature, paint a picture of someone who is content. What might that look like? Certainly wealth, right? Lots of money, good health, good looks, great car, great home, great family, big investment account, no worries. And it's interesting, when we take that caricature of what the world would say is the key to contentment and overlay it on the Apostle Paul's life, none of that's true. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Because the Apostle Paul is penning these words of saying that he's figured out the secret of contentment as he is in a Roman prison, lost of all freedom, under great affliction, But yet he says he has figured it out. Let's read it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at least you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance... I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs." Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I think the first key, the first secret to... Contentment is a byproduct of trusting God. In fact, I'll be up front. Not all my points will be created equal. Ultimately, the battle of contentment is fought on this point alone. Do we trust God? You can think of it this way. It's if I had a coin in my hand and one, one side of the coin was contentment and I flipped it over, that other side would be trusting God. If I took out a different coin, and that was a coin of discontentment, and I flipped that over, the other side of that coin would say a lack of trust in God. So we need to spend some time on this point. It is critical for us, if we are going to live the contented life, to increase our trust and faith in God. Look at it in verse 11 says, I have learned to be content. So let me be clear and define it. It means this. It means to be satisfied, to have enough, to have sufficiency. 
We see this concept in other places in Scripture. We see it in the Apostle Paul's life himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, he's brought up into heaven and seen things that no man has seen before. And God gives him a thorn in the flesh in order to keep him humble from that experience. Paul prays, asks God to remove it. He doesn't. And the Lord's response to Paul is, My grace is sufficient for thee. It's the same word, the same concept. Let me give you a working definition. Contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition in life than to belong to the Lord and to trust him and his word in every circumstance. Let me read it again. Contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition in life than to belong to the Lord and to trust him and his word in every circumstance. Let me add some additional thoughts on this concept. I think when we think of contentment, we think of it merely as a virtue, kind of a nice-to-have. It would be certainly nice to uh, live a, a life of contentment. But I also understand that it's also a command. So it's something that God has commanded us as believers to be, to live, is a contented life. One of the examples in Hebrews 13 in the contrast of the love of money. It says, let your character be free from the love of money, but instead being content with what you have. Secondly, as we wrap our arms around, our minds around this idea of contentment, I want us to understand that discontentment is a sin. Right? We've got to see it that way, so we fight this battle with energy. And I would say it's not only a sin, I would say it's a serious sin, it's a grievous sin. I don't want to get into a stack ranking of degrees of sin, but I do want to tell you that I believe that discontentment is the gateway to all other sins. If I was to show you a picture of what contentment truly looks like, we could go to Genesis chapter 2. That is the chapter of complete contentment. Adam and Eve walking in the garden with the Lord. They have everything. Complete sufficiency. Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 3 follows Genesis chapter 2. And I told you we didn't know what the next minute held. Wow. But Genesis chapter 3 is followed by Genesis chapter 2. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3, we're familiar with the disobedience, the rebellion that took place in Adam and Eve's heart, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if we think about how that happens sequentially, certainly that's the fruit of the sin. But actually, the way the enemy came at Eve first was to attack her trust in God. First through misquoting some scripture, and then outright saying, God's a liar. What God has promised you, what God has told you, is a lie. And you can get more satisfaction. In fact, you could even become like God if you breach his command. And that's the way the enemy works. 
And that's the way he will attack us in our life to move us to a position, a mindset of discontentment, is to attack our trust in God. We see this in multiple places. In fact, the way the enemy works, we see him speaking audibly in Scripture just on three occasions in the book of Job. And then he shows up again in Matthew chapter 4 with the great temptation of Christ. Same attack, attacking Jesus with Jesus' trust in God, whether it was turning the stones into bread or casting himself off the pinnacle of the temple or to, to bow his knee before Satan so he would be able to receive the kingdoms of the world. But each time Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written, ultimately was able to reject the snares of the enemy through complete trust in God. And that's what I see in verse 10 with the Apostle Paul's life. Let me add some additional context here. It's been 10 years since Paul founded the church in Philippi. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16, the great Macedonian call where he left Asia Minor. He brought the gospel to Europe for the first time in Philippi, he and, he and Silas. Mentions in verse 15 and 16 that this church, this Philippian church, gave him multiple gifts. You read through Acts 16, they thrown into prison, they're miraculously driven, del- delivered, and they moved to, on to Thessalonica. And it says here, the, this, this church, which elsewhere in Scripture, Paul says they were poor, gave Paul two gifts while he was ministering in Thessalonica because he was working day and night. So he had more time to preach the gospel. Look at his trust. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. This individual, Epaphroditus, has showed up at his door after nearly 10 years from Philippi to Rome is 800 miles and Paul says I rejoiced in the Lord greatly he could see God orchestrating behind the scenes he says you have revived your concern in me that word revive is, is an agricultural term that means to blossom and what Paul knows is that God worked in the Philippians heart to bring this gift to him He ends verse 10 by saying, I didn't receive it before because you lacked opportunity. God's sovereign. If Epaphroditus, if God wanted Epaphroditus to show up a week before, a year before, he would have. Paul wasn't bitter. Sometimes when we're waiting for God to do something in our life, we can get frustrated, we can get bitter. We don't see that in Paul's life. I'm sure as he's sitting in that prison, perhaps he had the thought of, where is all the people I minister to, these churches, these people? Later on, he's going to mention he's suffering great affliction as he's chained to a Roman prison guard for most of the day. So if we are to win the battle of discontentment, we have got to elevate our trust in God. You see this regardless of what's happened in our life. We see biblical characters that have had <coughs> great injustices done to them, but are able to conquer that and live a contented life, whether it's Ruth 
or Joseph in the Old Testament, what his brothers did to him, the evil acts. But when you can step back and say God is sovereign and trust God in all things, we have a way of remaining content in difficult times. Secondly, contentment shouldn't vacillate with our circumstances. Look what he says in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. But put it another way, Paul says in times of plenty, Paul wasn't more content. In times of need, Paul wasn't less content. His, his contentment was something that was internal. It wasn't based on external factors. Because look what he was suffering in verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. That word humble means means <coughs> to be brought low in poverty. It also says to live in prosperity. We forget that prior to taking the gospel and evangelizing the known world at that time, that Paul was a very wealthy man. We can say that because in Acts it says that he was a Roman citizen, as was his parents. For a Jewish person of that day, that would have been costly. He trained under the best teacher of that day, so he had an Ivy League education. So he's seen both. And what Paul's saying is, no, my contentment doesn't waver. It doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't vacillate because it's not based on external things. That's challenging. If I think if we're going to be honest, I know with me, as I read that, sometimes I have a contingent contentment. Perhaps yourself. What's a contingent contentment? What's it look like? That is the if only, and then fill in the blank. What's missing in your life that would cause you to think that, oh, if I only had X, that satisfaction, that sufficiency would be, would be mine. It's a contingent contentment. And I can assure you, if we're not satisfied with what we have presently, more won't help. It's known as the myth of more. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant says it well. Give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything is not everything. The world is always hanging something else to say, no, we need this, we need that. And that ultimately will lead to contentment. Now let me add some clarifications with contentment. Doesn't mean we should try and better ourselves. It doesn't mean complacency or mediocrity. In fact, I think doing everything with excellence is a hallmark of a Christian. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3 as we work. We're not working unto men. We're working unto the Lord. So we should be doing everything with excellence and not thinking contentment is status quo. Secondly, we should be content with what we have, but we should never be content with what we are. I call this a holy discontentment, which is good. Unfortunately, many of us have this backwards where we're not satisfied materially, but we're satisfied spiritually. We're not willing to, to move ahead. We're just, we're just stuck 
We're not growing in Christ. We're not increasing in our faith. Paul says this in just a couple verses over in chapter 3. And mind you, as we read this, he's writing this from a prison cell. So this is not material stuff he's talking about. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, you'll see here in the text in verse 11, contentment is learned over time. Look what he says. He says, I have learned in verse 11. In verse 12, he says, I have learned. And it's interesting because in verse 12, the word for learn he uses is is different than the one in verse 11. The one in verse 12, Paul borrows a, a word from the mystery religions that had the idea that initiate would move through certain stages as they progressed in that false religion. And what Paul is saying to us here is that the process of trusting God, maintaining a contented life, is something that he had learned over time. And you could probably trace the steps back in his life and see the difficult things that he has gone through. And it seems like each stage he has come through, his trust in God has increased. One of the commentators said that Paul was a member of the secret society of the satisfied in Christ. Part of the learning process and contentment is once again to eradicate bitterness of the past. It's also accepting things in our life that perhaps we cannot change. I remember a story of one of my professors, Dr. Stanley Toussaint, one of the better Bible teachers I've seen, a prolific writer who's since gone home to be with the Lord recently. But Dr. Toussaint was struck with polio as a young child, and it significantly impacted him physically. As I think about him and being under his teaching, I don't think I've ever met an individual that was more content, more satisfied than Dr. Toussaint, more cheerful, more joy in him. And I remember in one of the classes, someone asked him with his physical limitations, how could he be so content? And he said, I have learned to accept it. There are some things that God brings into our life, much like he did to the Apostle Paul and 2 Corinthians 12, to keep us dependent on him. We need to learn to accept it. Paul also learned in verse 13 that he could do all things through him who strengthened him. Now, when I read that verse, unfortunately, I see T-shirts with people lifting weights and achieving all sorts of great things. But obviously, in this context, what Paul is saying, the things that he can achieve is what he's talking about in verse 12. Abject poverty, going hungry. He has a way of somehow to rise above that. And he does it because it's internal crisis in him. 
Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is indwelling me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. It's interesting. What does this look like in verse 13 practically? John MacArthur, in his commentary, has a good illustration. He calls Philippians 4.13 God's spiritual pacemaker. If you think about how an actual pacemaker works with a physical heart, it reaches a point where the physical heart can't move on. And at that time, the pacemaker will kick in. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, We've got to cling to this promise and know that when we reach the end where we can't move forward, we can cling to this promise and God's spiritual pacemaker will kick in. On this verse, which is a pretty important verse for us as believers to cling to, Warren Rearsby says this, What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And what life finds in us depends on what we find daily in Christ. Contentment will be linked to what we are finding in the Word of God each day. I would suspect, as it is in my life, if I'm not spending time in the Word, discontentment will creep up in my life. Lastly, contentment grows when we focus on others If we live a life just for ourselves, we'll never be content. I think living for others is probably a theme of the book of Philippians, one could say. Philippians 1.9, Paul says this, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He goes on in chapter 2, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Remember, he's writing this from a prison. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That brings us to verse 14, where he says, Nevertheless, because I think one could read verses 10 to 13, and Paul saying, My contentment, my sufficiency is exclusive from your gift. And I don't think that's the complete message he wants to bring. So he gives a contrast here with nevertheless. He says, you have done well. The word literally means a beautiful thing in its character. You did right, Philippians. What they do, it says they shared in his affliction. It's amazing how the body of Christ can work. Philippi, 800 miles away. And what Paul is saying, the word he's saying, he's, you're sharing with me, you're helping me, you're coming alongside of me, and you're partnering with me. Paul also is thinking about their past generosity in verses 15 and 16. He's talking about this church was special to him. No church shared with me in the matter in giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent me a gift more than once for my needs. You can almost feel Paul talking about this and their great act of kindness to him, lifting Paul's contentment 
And in turn, as the Philippians would read this, they in turn realizing that they too have done a good thing. And like Paul has said before, interestingly, at this church in 2 Corinthians 8, it says they were a poor church and they gave out of their deep poverty. In verse 17, Paul is like as excited and pleased as his gift as far as meeting his needs. And in that day, in the Roman prison system, the state didn't provide. The prisoner was dependent on family and friends to provide their sustenance. Paul says in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account for ministering to me. It's a good picture of laying up treasures in heaven, something that also Pastor Curtis has spoken to us about recently. If you're struggling with discontentment, I would ask you, do you rejoice in the blessing of others? Are you blessing others? In verse 18, Paul says in a roundabout way that ultimately that they didn't give to him, that they gave to God. He says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma and an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You didn't give it to me. You ultimately gave it to God. He's borrowing language from the Old Testament. It's interesting. Chris read from 1 Peter 2. I think we can lose sight of that in the New Covenant that there are spiritual sacrifices that we still offer up to God. There's five that are listed in Scripture. This is one of them. Giving, as the Philippians did. Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, encourages us to present our whole bodies, everything we have, to dedicate ourselves to the Lord. And that would be our spiritual service of worship and that comes about through the renewing of our mind not being conformed to the things of this world another in Romans 15 is sharing the gospel leading others to the cross and the resurrection of Christ Hebrews 13 talks about our praises our spiritual sacrifices to God and and also in that same chapter it says our good works our spiritual sacrifices to God. I think love your neighbor this week. There was an accumulation of spiritual sacrifices from the young people in our church as they did well and ministered to others. In verse 19, he closes this thought out, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, once again anchoring us back in the trust and sovereignty of God. How can we be more content? What's the secret? By boldly trusting in God and His sovereignty. That is the foundation which our contentment will be built upon. Having a strong faith through all circumstances. Continually to learn and depend on Christ daily. Not once a week, daily. Finding new truths, new challenges, new directions, new encouragements within the Word of God. And then lastly, 
our contentment can increase and even flourish if we're preoccupied with the well-being of others. I'll close with an illustration. In fact, let me sum up, make it even simpler. Four words, the keys to contentment. It's faith, humility, dependence, and unselfishness. The story I came across was about James Montgomery Boyce, a, a pastor of a church not too far from here. 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a wonderful church. Just a great man of God, a great preacher. It was in the year 2000 that on Good Friday, he unfortunately received a cancer diagnosis. And it was a very aggressive form of cancer. And James Montgomery Boyce would pass away within two months. The story that I came across was told by his pastor. In one of his remaining days, he was with Dr. Boyce, and he asked Dr. Boyce, what message do you want me to give to the congregation? And Dr. Boyce asked him just to give him one message. And that was, tell them that I died content in the will of God. Contentment is a virtue, a command, was certainly serve us well in this life. But when you think about it, at the end of our lives, contentment, trusting in God, in his gift of salvation, it's the only thing. It's my prayer this morning that we would live a life that is contented and pleasing to God so we won't have to worry about that day and we'll be forever living a life that is contented and in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we live in a world that distracts us, sends false messages, tempts us to think that we could gain contentment, satisfaction, through earthly things, through material things. Lord, it's a battle that we face daily. We interact with social media and see things, and our mind plays tricks on us in our own fallen state. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us a great measure of strength, a great measure of faith, increase our trust in you and your sovereignty, Lord. Let us be content with whatever we're going through, Lord. Lord, let us learn each and every day through things you show us in your word how we can trust in you more to be more content. And Lord, at times, let us take our eyes off ourselves. Let us be more, let Olga Town be more like the Philippians. We need more people like Epaphroditus willing to risk all to minister to others. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us and bless us this day as we move forward and seek to live a contented life in you. Amen.